0: Well, the text that we're about to look at is uh, one that my Bible college professors would have um, shunned me and shot me over if I tried teaching it all in one session, okay? Um, It's 26 verses, John chapter 17, yet earlier this week I was determined to teach it all in one session. And uh, up until four o'clock yesterday afternoon, I was determined to teach it all at one time. And then I had a reality check, and you know, those times when God's Spirit really kind of presses upon you, don't do it, don't do it. Well, I finally gave in, and uh, decided about 4.15, I walked down here, and I said to Michael, um, because we had the Saturday night service last night, I said, hey, uh, I made an executive decision. I'm only going to teach the first nine verses. And he said, man, I'm so glad to hear that. I thought you were crazy to try and take that on. <laughs> I wish he would have said that earlier, but... Um, So, I I come into this uh, with a different mindset this morning um, than what I might have had on Monday because of the depth of what we're about to look at has become even more real to me this week. And I hope it will be for you this morning as we look through it. Let me phrase it by asking you this question. If you were told this morning that um, you're on your deathbed and you've got six hours by 30 this afternoon, you're gone. What are you going to be in, in your thought process? What are you going to be articulating? What are you going to want to share with someone? What do you want to resolve? See, in context, when we place ourselves into John chapter 17, we find Jesus on his deathbed it's it's within literally an hour before he's arrested and the beatings begin and and you know how that unfolds so we find someone on their deathbed and we have to approach this as the greatest prayer ever prayed on planet earth and when when you hear that we're going to study a prayer and you might be tempted mentally to just say oh come on study a prayer can't we just blow through that and get to the arrest This is so rich in understanding the nature and character of God. We've got to take our time to go through it. The the greatest prayer ever prayed, and it's from God to God. So we're going to approach this in humility and in worship, because here's what's going on. We get to listen in to God the Son, talk to God the Father, just like the disciples we can place ourselves right there in the garden and we get to listen in to him because he's about to give his life. So what would you be praying for in that moment? God, get me out of here. Or would you extend my life? I'd like a few more hours, please. That's what most of us would do. I would do it. Who would want to face a crucifixion? So what you're looking at here is the prayer of the overcomer. Where we left off at last week with John 16, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. I am the victor. We said the word Nikao. This is the prayer of the Nikao, the one who's overcome. So here's what's unique about this prayer. The one who speaks it. And when he speaks it, he is the incarnate Son of God the creator and sustainer of the universe. You need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that on a regular basis. Not just the one who went to the cross, but he is the creator of the universe. Let me remind you, up on the screen, Colossians 1.16, for by him, speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So from Barack Obama to Yasser Arafat, King Saul to Noah, the ruler of China. Every ruler, every authority ever put in position by him, for him. That means from the sleeping bear dunes up in Traverse City to the jungles in Africa. God In the form of Jesus, spoke all things into existence, and that is who is praying in the garden. The one who was the word and is the word, according to John 1 1. In the beginning was the word and is the word.
1: Remember that? It's
0: familiar. That's who we're looking at. And he is about to step into the most shameful, painful death known to man the most humiliating circumstances the Roman government could create. And what had been planned in eternity past is about to unfold in the next few hours of his life. So this has been rightly labeled, chapter 17 has been rightly labeled the prayer, but more appropriately, we would call it the petition or the proclamation. And you're going to discover it's also full of revelation It's going to show us things that we didn't know in the way that he articulates it. So join me in this as the veil is drawn back, and it's drawn back by Jesus himself, and he escorts us by the hand into the Holy of Holies, right into the throne room of God. And let's see how he approaches this, because the circumstances are dismal. From a human perspective, for the disciples looking at this, they think it's all undone. You've seen that in the last few weeks as we've studied this. But you'll discover Jesus' prayer is anything but pessimistic. Absolutely not. Instead, it's a confident declaration of the glory of God that's about to be revealed. Uh, Leon Morris, who's a theologian, summed it up this way. I want you to see his quote. We so often understand this prayer as though it were rather gloomy. It is not. It is uttered by one who has just affirmed that he has overcome the world. And it starts from this conviction. Jesus is looking toward the cross, but in a mood of hope, not one of despondency. So if you have your Bible, join me in John chapter 17, and we're going to start right off with verse 1, and we'll only be able to get through nine verses this morning, but if you didn't bring a Bible with you, they're in the pew racks right there in front of you, so you can follow along that way or up on the screen. John 17, 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, when it says, in my interpretation of the Bible, um, is the NASB, New American Standard Version, it says Jesus spoke these things. If you have the NIV, New International Version, yours might say, after these things, meaning after. Chapter 14, after chapter 15, after chapter 16, after everything that he had to say in these last few weeks that we've studied, then he lifts up his eyes to heaven and begins this conversation. And we understand that Jesus spoke these things in this intimate connection with the Father, preceding all the things that he had to say, and he lifts his eyes up to the throne of God. Now, I don't know if you do that, I don't typically when I pray. Typically, I close my eyes and bow my head. But every time you see Jesus praying in Scripture, eyes are open, he's looking up towards the Father's throne. You see it when he broke the bread. You see it when he fed the 5,000. His eyes are up towards heaven. What's he doing? He's acknowledging God's throne, which rules over all. So he's making that visual appearance look. I do that when I go out on my property at home. If I want to pray and and just be alone and, and go for a walk, By myself, I don't get down and and look at the ground. I look up at the sky because it reminds me of God's majesty and grandeur. And the very next thing he does is he says something very subtle. He says, Father. Now, here's why this is subtle, but yet it's in total contrast to what the Jews of this day knew. The Jews of this day knew God in a personal pronoun, or I'm sorry, a plural pronoun way. They would typically say, Our Father. But Jesus has used a singular personal pronoun here when he says, my father. And that's the way it's written in the Greek language. He addresses him as father, personal relationship, establishing the fact that he's the son of God. Now, in the Jewish world, this is something that they would not have understood because they've developed a very remote view of God. God is the one who delivers words to you through angels and sends messages out. And they would never pronounce his name let alone in public, to call him Father. that This just wouldn't happen. So Jesus does something very subtle there for us, and he's emphasizing the intimacy of the personal relationship. And you do it when you pray, if you come before him and say, my Father. That's what Jesus is modeling for us here. Now, there's something significant here for another reason. On one hand, what he's doing is he's making himself equal with God. By saying Father, establishing the fact that he's the Son of God. But on the other hand, he's also demonstrating that he's distinct from the Father. You see, he didn't say uh, Jesus in heaven. He's not praying to himself, is he? He's praying to God the Father. So there's this theological truth here. The Son is equal to the Father, the Son of God, but distinctly different. And the very first thing he says in verse 1, Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, I put this in your notes this morning. The very first item, if you picked up the bulletin when you came in, very first point there is that you as a servant of God have every single right to ask the Father to help you to bring glory to his name. I do this personally whenever I get ready to teach here at New Hope. I find a quiet place in the church before every service starts, and I ask God to help me bring glory to his name because you have that responsibility as an individual who represents the King of Kings. But you have to stop and ask yourself this question. He's about to be tortured. How can he bring glory to God in the midst of a setting where he's about to be tortured? Now, glory or glorify can mean to praise or to honor. And you just did that when we were singing the doxology. Doxa, the word doxa means to bring praise. So the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow, you're bringing words of praise. It, it can mean that. But the way that it's written in the Greek language meant this, to clothe with splendor. So if you lived in this period of time, you'd understand this phraseology that Jesus used here because when he clothed the Father with splendor, they would immediately picture a king who's on his throne, whose attendants would have just draped him with the robe of the king and put the coronation crown on his head. That's what it means to clothe with splendor. And that's what Jesus is asking for here. Will you help me, Father, to clothe you with splendor? How can he do that in the midst of this setting where he's about to be tortured? Well, let's think about the circumstances. God's glorious reputation is at stake. What he promised in eternity past that he would fulfill in the life of Christ by bringing salvation is about to come about. And Jesus is saying, give me the ability to bring glory to your name to clothe you with splendor so that everyone will see that your nature and character is true. What you said you would do, you will do. Now notice Just because he knew the will of God didn't cause him to stop praying. Even though he knew the will of God, he knew what God wanted him to do. He didn't forego praying. and As a matter of fact, on the contrary, it energizes the reality of the promise and he's claiming the promises to be true because he wants to see God glorified. I came to a conviction this week that that verse in Scripture that says that whenever a sinner repents and turns to the Lord, the angels have a party in heaven and start rejoicing. It's because they're glorifying the Father. They're seeing evidence that God has brought about his purposes. He's accomplished his work. And so they're, they're praising God. They're having a party, a celebration. So Jesus is recognizing, Father, I want you to energize the reality of your promise. He's consumed with the glory of God. Let me remind you of that. Hebrews twelve two, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Can you imagine that? knowing the most shameful, painful death known to man, but for the joy of God's purposes, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew that he would sit down at the throne of victory. That's what drove him forward, because God's word is always true. He knew that it would be accomplished, and that he would sit down at God's right hand. Go forward with me to verse 2. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You have given him authority over all flesh. So that was a gift from God the Father to God the Son. Authority over all humanity. So here's what we know. This is a little bit of predestination for us. In eternity past, before the earth was formed, before the sun was spoken into existence, God sat down at some point and began transcribing or inscribing the names of those who would be in the Lamb's book of life and that they were a gift to Jesus, God the Son. This was the recording process by which God gave this gift and he sent it as a pledge To the Son, these are yours. They belong to you. That's why Jesus is saying, you gave me authority over all flesh. So here's what we know for sure about predestination. A lot of people miss this. When the Father decided in eternity past to redeem us, he did so with one ultimate thought in mind. This ultimate thought is the intent of conforming us to the image of his Son. A lot of people get hung up on the issue of predestination and they miss this component. Let me show you up on the screen. It comes from Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he's omniscient, so he knew these things in advance. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become what? Conformed to the image of his son. Many people think, how can God do that? That election process. How does he predestine some and not others? And they missed the concept that the reason God understood and identified those individuals who would respond to the gospel message is so they would be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I'll come back to predestination in just a few minutes, but let's move forward. Verse 3, it says, this is eternal life. And we want to step back and say, whoa, he's talking about eternity. What, what's, what is this? This is eternal life. What is? Knowing God personally. Not just knowing about him, but having a personal relationship with him. And you may not know that because of your own personal background, that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That that is what he's talking about here, that there's a personal knowing. Let me show you up on the screen, verse 3, a little bit more intensely. Look at this phrase, know you the only true God. This Greek language, the way that this is written here, is not merely intellectual knowledge. It's talking about a deep, intimate, abiding relationship. Because the truth is, according to Scripture, even the demons believe and shudder, but they don't have the personal relationship. And that's what God invites you into. So Jesus says to know you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ, See, you can't know the Father apart from the Son. That's what we're told according to Scripture. It's not possible. That's why he calls him the only true God. And this one true God reveals himself in the person of the Son. You can't detach the two. They're intimately connected. And here's the truth. Everyone on planet Earth, everyone in the universe is subject to this truth. Whether they acknowledge it or not. Everyone is subject to the truth of this. There is no embarrassment about it. There is no apology about it in the Bible. God's purposes are eternal, and they stand permanently. What he was yesterday, he is today. He will be tomorrow. He doesn't change it just because people in 2012 don't like it. This is what we understand from God's Word. Verse 4 says this, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I glorified you in verse 4. So when I'm looking at that, I started asking myself, to what degree? See, it's one level that we brought glory to God. I stood here with you, and we sang, and we brought glory to God. We proclaimed his attributes. We spoke of his nature and character. But Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth. Think about this with me for a minute. Jesus so successfully glorified God on planet earth that this morning there are billions of people in 2012 around the entire globe who are worshiping and praising God. That's how successfully he glorified God the Father. On planet earth. He accomplished the work that he was called to do. And so when he says, I accomplished the work, what did he accomplish? The plan. The plan that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit put together before time in eternity past. That's what he orchestrated. This plan was guaranteed by the promise of God. And you can't have a better guarantee than that. This promise that was guaranteed by God, what is this promise? Look with me on the screen. Titus 1-2. The hope of eternal life. That's a plan I want to be part of. And which God who cannot lie, that's what we looked at last week, this God who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Literally in the Greek language, long ages ago means before time began. Now you have to ask yourself, if it's before time began, and he made a promise, who did he make the promise to? The angels? No. He made it to himself. Because there's no higher authority to swear by. God accomplished his own purposes by committing to himself. God the, fun, God, God, the God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit made a commitment to one another. The Trinitarian God. That we will accomplish this purpose. We will redeem humanity. Now, go forward with me in verse five because Jesus begins asking for something that you and I can't ask for. He asks for something that is impossible for us to go to God for the glory which I had with you before the world was. He's returning to heaven. He's returning to full glory. So what's he doing? He's asking the Father to reverse the process by which he emptied himself. We understand, according to Scripture, that when Jesus, God the Son, left heaven, he emptied himself of his attributes, set them aside. And now he's coming back and saying to the Father, I'm about to be restored. The coronation process is about to take place. So will you reverse the process and bring me the glory back that I had before the world was? Do you know there's a passage of Scripture where you get to actually see the coronation ceremony which has already taken place? I want to take you to it because I'm not sure if you've looked at Philippians 2.9 that way before, but Philippians 2.9 talks about Jesus' coronation ceremony. Look with me up on the screen. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Stop. That's something that happened when Jesus defeated death on the cross, when he was resurrected from the grave and ascended to the Father. God the Father highly exalted him. It's already happened and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, future tense now, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. That has not happened yet, has it? That hasn't happened yet. It will happen. We're told according to the authority of God, the God who cannot lie, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's what we're told according to Scripture. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's what you see happening in this prayer. Jesus is looking beyond the cross, beyond the circumstances that he's found himself in. Not by accident, but by purpose, by plan. And he's looking beyond that to God's greater plan. Redemption of the world. And he knows his glory is about to be given back to him. So that's why I call it the coronation ceremony. Now at this point, at the end of that passage, he stops praying about his relationship with God the Father. And he begins praying about his church. Specifically, he starts talking about the disciples. So let's look at this for just a minute. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. Skip forward just a few words in verse six where he talks about the men the men whom you gave me out of the world. God gave them to Jesus. It's a revisiting of what he's just stated earlier. Now, from a human perspective, this group of guys is anything but impressive. They don't have any resources. They don't have any great wisdom. This is the group of individuals that we've been learning about over the last few weeks, last few months, who have been walking with him, and they've had truth revealed to them, but they're not impressive at all. And yet, they're called to continue Jesus' work after he's gone, just like you are. So what does Jesus do? He begins praying for them because they've been given the responsibility of taking the gospel to the entire planet. No wonder Jesus intercedes for them. His confidence is not in their resolve because we're going to see them in just a short time scatter to the winds, and they come back again. His confidence is not in their resourcefulness because they're broke. They've been out of work for three years. If you're a fisherman who doesn't fish, you've got no income. If you're a tax collector who doesn't collect taxes, taxes, what are you going to do? They're broke. There's no welfare system in this period of time. These are guys who have no resources, no resolve, and yet Jesus recognizes they're about to step into the adventure of their life taking the gospel to the world. And so he goes to the Father saying, I need them to be equipped. Look with me up on the screen. John MacArthur summed it up this way. Jesus knew the Father would hear and answer his prayers, not because the 11 were inherently capable, but because they were part of those whom the Father had promised him from before the foundation of the world. The striking reality of prayer is that it is not designed to change God's will, but to call for its fulfillment pretty cool truth and Jesus is obviously manifesting that right there now he's purposely praying out loud so that John when he's in his 90s could write this all down for us here in 2012 for people back in the 1800s back in 300 AD that they could read these things and be strengthened and be encouraged and as a result we're being taught that's why you study a prayer like this so he says in verse 6, I have manifested your name. What does that mean to do that? It means that Jesus revealed God. Now we said our entire study, this series called The Portrait, is based on John 1.18. No man has seen God, yet Jesus has explained him. Jesus is saying right there himself, I've explained you. I've helped people understand what your nature and your character is. Now, this is something that you get to do on a regular basis when you're talking with your friends, when you're talking with your coworkers, you're talking with your family members, your next-door neighbors, individuals in your life who may not know what it is to have a relationship with God can see what that's like through you, and here's how. When you talk about the nature and character of God and how he has shown up in your life and how he has been faithful to you, no one can refute that testimony. They can argue to your blue in the face and their blue in the face about creation and six days of creation or evolution. They can take all those things and try and take them apart if they want to, but they cannot argue with what God has done in your own personal life. And so therefore, I'm going to engage you in just a little bit dialogue here. I'm going to ask you to think in terms of one word that you would use to describe the nature and character of God in the way that he has revealed himself to you in your life. And just call that out. Can you think of one word that would describe him? Say it again. Patient, that's right. Loving, giving, merciful. Say it again. Sovereign. Alive? I'm deaf, sorry. Reliable, thank you. Protector. Merciful. Comforter. Comforter. Those are words that you can reiterate back to individuals because it must be true in your life. If you can say, He's my comforter, He's reliable, He's merciful, He's true, it's got to be something that you know about personally. And that's what Jesus is talking about. I have manifested your name. So when you speak of God's name, you're summing up all of His character, all of His nature all of his attributes. So the the understanding was that the the writer of Psalms got this. Look with me up on the screen. He said it this way in Psalm 9.10. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. Now, you can't put your trust in someone just because you know their name, Mark, Tim, Joshua. There has to be something associated with their name. And so when you speak of the name of God, and that's why Jesus said, I have manifested your name. He means, I have explained how reliable God is. Then he goes on in verse six to say, they were yours and you gave them to me. This is a really forceful affirmation that even before the conversion of the disciples, God knew. God knew what was going to become of them. Uh, let me help you frame this um, by thinking of Paul. Paul. Paul is about to go into the city of Corinth in the the New Testament in the book of Acts, chapter 18. And he was afraid to go in the city. God had sent him out. He's supposed to be witnessing for Christ. But he didn't want to go into Corinth. Corinth was a pretty violent place. It was vile and violent at the same time. People really stood opposed to the things of God. And Paul didn't want to go in there. And God came alongside him and said, Paul, do not be afraid For I have many in the city who belong to me. Do not be afraid to teach them of the truth of Jesus Christ. See, God knew in advance who those were that would belong to him, who would respond to the message because he's omniscient, he's sovereign. And that's part of the duality of the nature of God. Yes, he gives us free will. He gives us the ability to decide. But if you take away his knowledge of who's going to be a believer and who isn't a believer, you take away his omniscience and he's no longer God. So there's a mystery here. But both truths are found in God's word and so therefore you have to embrace both truths. God is the God who understands who was going to be a believer and who wasn't going to be a believer. And those who have rejected are still liable to Him. They still have the responsibility to stand before Him, personal responsibility, and God will deal with them. Let's move forward. Here's the last verse we're going to look at today, verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given Me, for they are yours, and all things that are Mine are Yours, and Yours are Mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm just going to warn you in advance, this might be something that's going to tick you off, okay? And my approach on this is to take it straight on for what Jesus said, but this would make some people very uncomfortable. But this is a pet peeve of mine in how people treat their prayer relationship with God. I especially watched it unfold this last week with the horrible episode that took place out in Colorado. I'll explain that in just a minute. So, We see Jesus say very specifically, I ask. I ask, it's clearly with a sense that I'm asking this of you, Father, God the Father, because these are yours. Now understand what he's put right in here is a self-imposed restriction. God the Son has put a restriction on what he's about to ask as to who he's praying for. And the fundamental reason for it is theological. Here's the theological reasoning. Look at with me closely at verse 9. I do not ask on behalf of the world. The world, and by that I mean those who stand against the things of God, those who stand opposed to Jesus Christ, can be prayed for, but to the end, that they might join those who belong to Jesus. Get that? What we're praying for when we pray for unbelievers... For those who stand opposed to God, who are outside of the understanding of who God is, what we're praying for is that God would accomplish his will and his purposes in their life. To pray for the created moral order in general. People out there who stand opposed to God, to pray for them to prosper when they're living in rebellion against God is blasphemous to the name of God. Uh, Let me expand on that. Before you grab your keys and run out of here because of what I've just said, okay? I had individuals in the Saturday night service that are really struggling with this, and in the Saturday night service we do question and answers. And so one individual said last night, Are you saying that we can't pray for someone whose nephew is dying with cancer or perhaps they have pneumonia or they're in a car accident? What clarify that for me. Here's what I want you to understand about this. We pray for those who are believers in Jesus Christ differently than we pray for those who are not believers in Jesus Christ. And that is why Jesus has said, I pray for those who belong to you, not for the world, for this reason. Every time some individual comes to me and it happens on a regular basis and says, would you pray for so-and-so in my life? My nephew is struggling with this or I'm about to launch a business. Would you pray for God's blessing on that? Or if someone comes along and says, my daughter is dating so-and-so, and I'm not sure about that relationship, would you pray about that with me? Here's my first response every single time. This individual that you've asked me to pray for, are they a believer in Jesus? Because if they are, I will pray for them differently than I will pray for a non-believer. Every single time you pray for an individual who is outside the realm of the understanding of who God is through Jesus Christ, you need to pray first and foremost for God's will to be accomplished in their life. And God's will is that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he may be using circumstances in their life, however terrible they may be, he may be using those circumstances to dry and draw that individual to himself. And if we try and superimpose our will in the midst of those circumstances by saying, God, this young man who's dying is, is, needs to be healed. It may be that God's taken that person through that journey in order to draw that person to himself. And so, first and foremost, we pray for God's will. That's why Jesus says, I pray for those who belong to you. I do not pray for the world. Because if you'll read forward this, last, this upcoming week, and you'll see in the rest of chapter 17 what he's about to ask for, it's very specific to believers so I encourage you, when someone comes to you and says, will you pray for so-and-so, you ask that question, is this person a believer? And then you can pray much more intelligently about what they're asking for. So this week I'm watching this thing unfold in Colorado and the news media is all over it. You know, They're trying to cover stories left and right. And I kid you not, every single channel I flip to, I hear these individuals on television shows and radio shows say, oh, we've got to pray for them, we've got to pray for them. we'll we'll be praying for you. They constantly are throwing the word out there without clarifying because they have no theological understanding what it means to go before God the Father. Say, God, I want your will to be accomplished here. So even though it's a terrible situation, will you reveal your power and majesty in this? Will you draw people to yourself as a result of this? Can you imagine if you heard that on national television? It's not gonna happen, but... Now, it's true. I want to to be very clear. God shows love to all the people of the world. It's called the doctrine of common grace. And even those who have rejected the gospel, according to what we see in Scripture, he causes his son to rise on the good and the bad, to reign on the good and the bad. God's common grace is upon all mankind. But he has a special love for those who belong to him in Jesus Christ. So Christ's intercessory work, especially as you see it in chapter 17 here, is only for those who belong to him eternally. Here's where we're going to wrap up this morning because Jesus made this statement in verse 10, all things that belong to you belong to me. Look very closely at verse 10. It says, all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. And let's grasp the significance of this because I want you to take this with you this week when you leave. The ultimate reason Jesus is confident that God the Father would be sure to protect his followers and to provide for them what they need is because they're his own. And this statement here is an extraordinary reach when he's emphasizing everything that you have, God the Father, is mine. Everything that I have is yours. You grasp the significance of that? He's putting himself on the same plane as God. It all belongs to me. So, like God, every single disciple that was around him at that moment. All believers belong to the Father. He's adopted you into his family through the Son. So here's what I'm going to end with you this morning. 1 Corinthians 6 19. This reminder for us. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. You belong to God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you belong to him, and he cares intimately for you. So his departure is imminent here. And how precious are you in his sight that even though he's on his deathbed, he's praying for you in advance for the things that you're going to face. He watches over us night and day. And you'll see next week, he's looking forward through future to the time when you live right now towards all believers throughout millennia. And he knows you. He knows you, church. And you have been on his heart for eternity. And he's looking forward to the day when we get to be together. Let's pray, church. Lord God, we take this as truth and as promises, as encouragement as warning. Father, I ask that you would take these things that we've studied this morning and you would seal them deeply in our heart where we need to be reminded that you are the God of all comfort. Remind us of that, Father. Where we need to be reminded that you are the God who is the encourager. Encourage this week. For those who need your provision, Father, may your provision fall abundantly upon them. God, we ask that you would release your resources through the power of your Holy Spirit upon your people who belong to you. We ask confidently knowing that you intimately care for us as your children. You merely ask us to come to you before you, asking that your will would be accomplished. So God, first and foremost, I ask for that in the life of this church this week. For those who have been in the auditorium throughout these three services, I ask that you would be accomplishing your purposes and your will in their life. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.